Last evening, I spoke over at Lanier uh, Theological Library on the topic, Was Jonathan Edwards a Christian Hedonist? Hedonist, H-E-D-O-N-I-S-T. The day before, we had a panel on Christian hedonism, self-denial, and the enjoyment of creation. So I'm brimming with Christian hedonism and want to talk to you about it this morning. Um, because I think it's one of the most important things I could say to you, and I think it's the heart, or very close to the heart, of the biblical message. But I can imagine somebody hearing the word hedonism with the word Christian stuck on the front of it and feeling something like, are you kidding me? Don't you realize what happened 180 miles west of here last Sunday in Sutherland Springs? You still want to be cute with your little pet phrase? No, I don't want to be cute. Under the call of God to preach the Word of God, and under the spirit of worship that is in this place, I don't do cute. I don't like cute. I get angry at churches that do cute. I'm also aware that between last Sunday and now, 7,000 people in America died every day. And many of them in excruciating pain, and probably most of them with no hope of heaven. And I am aware that Hurricane Harvey may cost your region $190 billion and massive hardship in the lives of thousands. And I am aware, as I preach, that Sonoma County wildfires cost California $2.8 billion and ruined 14,000 homes and killed 40 people in the last several weeks. And I am aware that President Trump and North Korean Chairman Kim Jong-un go back and forth with their barbs and put us on the brink of nuclear war. And I am aware that Charlottesville has pulled a thread on a fabric of racial harmony that threatens to unravel what some of us have worked on for decades. And I am aware that in a room with several thousand folks, every manner of suffering is represented. Cancer is here. Divorce and almost divorce is here. Runaway teenagers, you wish they were here. Lost jobs are here. And for a few of you, perhaps, this is your first Sunday back after one of the most worst periods in your life. I don't do cute. 
ever. So the reason I want to talk about Christian hedonism and use that phrase, which I mean very seriously, a life devoted to pleasure in God. The reason I want to talk about Christian hedonism is because, number one, 50 years ago, in the fall of 1968, almost 50 years, it provided for me a resolution of one of the deepest, most troubling tensions of my life that I couldn't figure out and has made more difference in my life for the last 50 years than anything else. That's the first reason I want to talk to you about it. And the second reason I want to talk to you about it is because if it took root in your life, if by the Holy Spirit and my message it could take root in your life, everything would change for your good and for God's glory. So those are my two reasons. Let's take them one at a time. The first one, the resolution of the tension 50 years ago that it resolved. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, Southern Baptist Church, Wade Hampton Boulevard, in a home, a gospel-loving, happy home. I am so profoundly thankful for my church and my family that I grew up in. When I went off to college, however, there was a tension in my life I could not figure out. It went like this. I knew from the Bible and I knew from my father that God designed me to glorify Him in everything I do. My dad quoted to me 1 Corinthians 10.31 as often as any verse, Son, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, son, you do it to the glory of God. So I knew, I knew that from my father. I knew it from, from the Bible. I knew something else. I knew Johnny Piper wanted to be happy. And I could no more not want to be happy, then I could not get hungry after two days of fasting. And I couldn't put those two together. God means to get glory in my life, and I want to be happy. And they're hung in the air. Maybe it hangs in your air. The assumption that if you do something to be happy, you ruin its morality. Because I, I had these memories of preachers who would come to the church and they'd say things like, if you want to do God's will, you put your will on the altar. And I thought, really? So it's always... God's will or happiness. They, 
the, the longing peace, the aching peace, the wanting peace, the desiring peace, the willing peace burning in my soul, that's got to go on the altar and die. And what's left is God's glory and God's will and your happiness and your want and your longing and your desires, they just stay on the altar. And you're probably sitting there thinking, well, that wasn't a very good church you went to or something like that. <laughs> and and it, it, I, I'm, I'm willing to own this is my fault that I couldn't see the problem, but it was real and it was troubling and I didn't know whether to leave Wheaton's campus and go into the inner city in search of some kind of meaning and significance in my life because that's going to ruin it anyway because you're not supposed to seek your own significance, your own happiness. You just, so you may feel a little bit of the, the tension that I had in those days. Now, if you have a Bible, I'm going to show you where God did the miracle. So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to take you to the, the text that is the central text for defining what I mean by Christian hedonism, the text that has defined life and death for me for these decades and which resolved the tension and has flavored and guided everything I do for the last 40 or 50 years. Philippians chapter 1, and uh, I'm sure you share the same view of preaching here that I do in that it really doesn't matter what the preacher thinks. What matters is can he show us in the book that what he thinks is in the book. And if he, if he can't, if I can't show you in the book what I mean by Christian hedonism, you should not pay any attention except to discern that is not true. Okay? So I mean for you to see this here. And we're going to take it very carefully, and I hope you have a good translation with all the words in it. Because some translations leave out important words, like for, F-O-R. One of the most important words in the Bible. Let's read verse 20 and 21. It is my eager expectation and hope, Paul says, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be, now the ESV says honored. What other words you might have? I love this big, long Greek word, megalathun thesitai. I can't even pronounce it. Believe me, it's big, it's long, it's beautiful. And it sounds like magnify. That's what I'm going to say. Magnify. I want Jesus to be magnified, honored, shown to be magnificent. Okay, that's what we get from this Greek word. Let's keep reading. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored, magnified, shown to be magnificent in my body, whether by life or by death, for... 
To me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So notice first in verse 20, wouldn't you agree that Paul is giving expression here to a passion in his life? I mean, that feels like an understatement to me to say a passion. I think it's the passion, but I'm happy if you would just honor this verse by saying, whoa, that's clear. A passion in Paul's life is Christ will be magnified in my body. I will, I will live so as to live and die so that Christ looks really good in me. That's what he's saying, right? So if we're together on that one, Christ is going to be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, then the key question becomes, how does it happen? And I, I loved the book of Philippians as a teenager. I got my Bible from when I was 15 years old. It's all marked up in red. Big J-O-Y is in red pencil at the top of the book. Pretty good summary for a 15-year-old. So I've, I've read this, but I had never until the fall of 1968 followed the logic of verses 20 to 23. The logic followed the chain of thought, the chain of reasoning with little words like for here at the beginning of verse 21. So wouldn't you agree now that when he begins verse 21 with the word for or because, he's giving the basis of how this comes about. So you want Christ to be magnified in your body, in life, and in death. How does it come about? That's your question, I hope. I want that to happen in my life. How will it come about? What's the basis of it? Verse 21, notice that to live in verse 21, for to me to live, corresponds to by life back in verse 20. And... Notice that to die in verse 21, for me to live is Christ to die. To die in verse 21 corresponds to by death back in verse 20. So clearly, he's explaining in verse 21 how it is that by life or by death, Christ will be shown to be magnificent in his body. So verse 21 is just built right underneath verse 20 to explain how it works. How does it happen in life and in death that Christ is shown to be magnificent? Here's Paul's answer. So I'm asking Paul, explain to me, help me know how I could live with you so that in my bodily life, especially in my dying, Christ would look really great. That's what I'm asking you, Paul. And Paul answers, my death will make Christ, I'm just going to pick up on the death piece now, my death will make Christ look magnificent because for me, to die is gain. 
So I'm leaving out to live, to live. Just, that's another sermon. And if you want to know the answer to what that means, I think just go over and link it with chapter 3, verse 8, then go over and link it with chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. But that's another, that's another sermon. I just want to know this morning how to die to make him look great. So that's here. Collapse verse 20 and 21 down to this, and you read, Christ will be shown to be magnificent in my body. I won't be shown to be magnificent. Christ will be shown to be magnificent in my body by death for explanation, foundation. To me, to die is gain. Now, I'll just pause here and let you think. You got that? Is that working for you? Is this making sense? Is the logic coming alive for you the way it came alive for me in the fall of 1968? When you die, let's just think about this for a minute. When you die, spouse is gone, sex is gone, children are gone, dream retirement is gone, Hobbies are gone. Until the resurrection, body with all of its pleasures are gone. You're in heaven, body's in the grave. All of that loss, right? Gone. That's why you cry. That's why it feels so strange. Scary even without faith. So what does he mean then when he says it's gain? What can he possibly mean when everybody in this room knows that the list of losses at death are enormous? It's a long list. And Paul uses one word to describe it. Gain. And the answer, as you know, is keep reading. Follow the logic all the way to 23. So let's do that. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. That is living and dying. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. And here's the answer. For that is far better than what? Everything. Otherwise, the text doesn't work. So now we know what he means by gain, don't we? When he says, the reason Christ is shown to be magnificent in my dying is because dying is gain. Now we know what gain means. It means Christ. <laughs> you lose everything, you get Christ. Weigh those in the scales, Christ goes down, everything flies away on the other side, and you call it gain. Now, you think through for a moment 
how that works and what it implies for your, for your life. Christ is shown to be magnificent in our dying when we experience Him as more satisfying than all the pleasures that life in this world can give. Is that, I'm just asking you, is that a faithful paraphrase of verses 20 and 21 and the logic between them? I'll say it again. Christ is shown to be magnificent in our dying when we experience Him as more satisfying than all the pleasures that life in this world, which is loose, lost at death, can give. Or to state it with my motto, Christ is most magnified in me when I am most satisfied in Him, especially through suffering and death. That is my definition of Christian hedonism. Christ is most magnified in my life when I am most satisfied in Him, especially in the moments of suffering and death where everybody expects me to be dissatisfied. And when I'm not dissatisfied but deeply satisfied in Jesus in the moment when everybody in the world is supposed to be dissatisfied, who looks good? Jesus looks good. He looks like a treasure beyond everything this world has to offer at that moment. All I did for the last 50 years is write books about that. You just let, if if that little seed goes deep into the center of the soil of your soul, the branches that come up and the fruit that will be born will be incalculable for the next decades of your life. The implications are absolutely staggering. But before I give you five or ten of those, let me just help you see how it solved the tension of my 22-year-old life. So my tension was, God aims to be glorified in John Piper's life, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, and John Piper wants to be happy and can't stop wanting to be happy because he seems to be wired that way by his maker. And I think that's true. I think you are wired to want to be happy the same way your body is wired to get hungry. And that's no accident. So I came to realize that God's passion to be glorified and my passion to be satisfied were not alternatives. Paul said, test this now. If you agree with me, you're buying into a lot. So don't go quickly. Test it by the word. Paul said, Christ is magnified not instead of his being satisfied, but by means of his being satisfied in Christ. Do you believe that? 
He did not say Christ will be magnified instead of Paul being satisfied in his death. He said Christ will be magnified through, by means of Paul counting him gain when everything is loss. In other words, more satisfied in Christ than anything. If you believe that, you're a Christian hedonist. You don't have to use the phrase. If you don't like the phrase, forget the phrase. Be the reality. God is, Christ is, most magnified, most glorified in you when in life and death you are most satisfied in Him. Ergo, therefore, 24-7, the rest of your life, you're on a quest to be satisfied in Christ. And your, your heart is very sinful, very deceptive, and it will trick you over and over again into thinking this TV show or this pursuit of fame or this perfect family or this money will be more satisfying than Christ. Therefore, if you believe what I just said, you will be now on a lifelong warfare to kill that over and over again to take the sword of the Spirit and stick it. Every day, that's what life is. Killing suicidal, deceitful desires that tell you this world is more satisfying than Jesus. you got to stick it with the sword every single day. So that tension went away. And everything changed for 50 years. Here I am, 71 years old, singing the praises of the fall of 68 because God came down in Dan Fuller and C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards and the Psalms and the Apostle Paul and Philippians 1 and opened my eyes to see they're not alternatives. They're not alternatives. What you say to a kid when you want him to go to the mission field is not mainly, you want to do God's will, then put your will on the altar. That's not mainly. I get it. There are biblical warrants for that kind of talk. Mainly you want to say, get a new heart, kid, so you love the will of God. You love the will of God. You can't imagine a happier place than Afghanistan in a shack trying to win Muslims for Jesus, risking your life. You can't imagine a more significant, happy, fulfilling, satisfying life. That's a little different than saying, put that on the altar, put your will on the altar. No, I want a new will. I want a new will that is totally in sync with Jesus' will and God's will. So what makes him happy makes me happy. And if he calls me to die, make my day. So that, that tension went away, and everything changed. And for the remainder of the time that we have, I've got 10 things written down that it'll change in your life. Okay, so this is all application. 10 things that are going to change. If you, if you, you people who were nodding your head you know, a minute ago, I think, I think that's right. I think what you said about verses 20 and 21 is right, that Christ is most magnified in you when you're most satisfied in Him, especially in times of suffering and death. I think that's right. Well, if you, if you believe that, if that really takes root, here's what's going to happen. I'll give you 10 examples of what's going to happen. Number one, 
We've seen this already, but I'll say it again. It changes the way you approach your own death, and that's a big issue. If you want to make Christ look great in your dying, you don't have to worry about some big performance, some big achievement, some big heroic sacrifice. There's a simple, childlike laying yourself into the arms of the one who makes all your losses gain. Just, that's the battle. There will be a battle. Will you lay yourself into the arms of the one who with his almighty power, infinite wisdom, immeasurable love, assures you by his word, this is going to be gain. And you rest and are satisfied in his word. I... Uh, I told my wife this morning, I'm going to announce to these people what's going to go on my gravestone if I die before I get home. And that's a little, a little open window to leave me a chance to change my mind later. Okay. But you now have it. I'm going to tell you what will be on John Piper's gravestone if I uh, have a, a brain aneurysm. And, and fall over here in five minutes, which could happen, because I'm on a blood thinner, and, and you know, they don't work all the time. And <laughs> I've been sitting on a plane, and it just goes, boom, you're, you're gone. That would be just a really easy way to go, just awesome. And preaching, what more could you ask? So if that happens, <laughs> so where's my wife? Raise your hand, Noel. Okay, she's... Okay, way over there. So my wife is here, and I'm saying to her and, and to you, here's what's going to go on my gravestone if I die in the next 18 hours or so. Savior magnified, soul satisfied, Philippians 1, 20 to 23. I like that. Savior magnified, soul satisfied. And underneath, Philippians 1, colon, 20-23. It's not going to happen yet. Or it could be, I get shot. And you too. Number two, Christian hedonism changes how we think about conversion. Listen to Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, just like finding the kingship of Jesus, right, for your life, finding Jesus as king, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. That's a picture of conversion. Isn't it? Becoming a Christian. So I'm, I'm sure there are people in this room now who are not 
Christian, truly Bible-believing, born-again, lovers of Jesus. And you are, what, it, what does it mean? It means, it means not only believing truth, but finding a treasure. So evangelism becomes not only persuasion about truth, but pointing to a treasure. A treasure that's more valuable than anything you have. That's conversion. It's called conversion. The Holy Spirit does something. And suddenly, Christ is attractive, beautiful, glorious, sufficient, needed, a, a magnified Savior. And the soul is honoring that by a growing sense of, you're enough. You satisfy me. All that stuff I've been living for is just getting weaker and weaker. Doesn't happen all at once. First Peter describes the new birth. And then if this rascal chapter break would get out of the way, at chapter 2, just forget chapter breaks, right? They really get in the way, especially between chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. Oh, my, that's a bad one. Just get rid of that chapter break, and it goes right into telling you how you move from new birth to growth. Like newborn babes desire the sincere spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And all that's relating back to you were born again, not with perishable seed, but with imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Shame on you, chapter break. We've got to see what it is to be born and then to grow by desiring the milk of the Word, which helps you taste and see He's really good. And that's how you, you grow. That's the fight. So conversion Matthew 13, 44 is the discovery of a treasure that is more valuable than anything. Number three, Christian hedonism changes the, the way we think about faith and the fight of faith. Listen to Jesus in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes, that is, has faith, he's talking about what faith is, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So bread and water. Jesus is br bread that satisfies hunger and living water that satisfies thirst. And if you, if you put the first and second half of the verse together, they illumine each other. I'll read it again. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what would be your definition of faith if you just defined it on the basis of that verse alone? And mine would be 
believing in Jesus is a coming to him as bread, as water, so as to have the soul hunger and soul thirst satisfied. That's faith. And I fear, I don't know how it is here, but the milieu I grew up in, faith was not talked about that very, like that very often. It was almost always heady and decisionistic. Like, here's some ideas, here's some choices you can make, make the choices, and now you're in. Not a word about hunger, thirst, soul satisfaction, new desires, new tastes, miracle new birth. But I'm saying faith is not a mere decision. It's a miracle. It's the awakening of you satisfy my soul's hunger. You satisfy my soul's thirst. You are what I was made for and all I need, you are it. Come on in. That's faith. This, this, this little stuff about a mere decision leaves our churches filled with carnal non-Christians who call themselves Christians. So be careful. Believe what you sing and you'll be okay. Number three. Or is that three? That was three. Number four. Christian hedonism will change what you think about evil. Evil. What is evil? How would you define evil? Here is a description of evil from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Second, they have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns. They have dug dry, empty wells. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what's your definition of evil? Evil is the creator of the universe who loved us enough to send his son to die in our place, holding out infinite satisfaction in the fountain of living water. And we taste it and go, eh, I don't think so. And we start digging, just digging and digging in the world. I will find it. I will find it here, not there. That is evil. That's the evil behind all evils. Murder in Sutherland Springs is not the ultimate evil. It's what was going on before and inside in relation to God Almighty that said, you don't count in my life. I will have my revenge. I will have it my way. I will do my thing to get my satisfaction and you can take a trip, creator. That's ultimate evil. And it yields a million other evils like murder 
And we get so worked up about murder and, and rape and adultery and stealing. And God hardly ever comes into the picture for a lot of people when defining evil. So here's my definition of evil. Jeremiah My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. What makes it so evil is that he is so good. I have water for you. I know what your souls need. I know what satisfies your soul. I made your soul. I know what it needs, and I'm it. And evil is no thank you. Or, no. Now I will find my way and do my thing, and I will dig my wells and my cisterns, and I will suck on this dirt till I'm dead. And then I'll go to hell, and I will hate you forever. No regrets. That's evil. And it yields a thousand horrors in this world. Number five, Christian hedonism changes the way we think about self-denial. There is a real, real doctrine and teaching of self-denial in the Bible, right? Mark 8.34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So you should ask, okay, Mr. Christian hedonist that says you're supposed to do everything to maximize your pleasure, deal with that. And my response is always read the next verse. Just read the next verse. We're dealing with Jesus here. You don't, you don't, you don't pull Jesus' words apart. Take your little favorite phrase or my little favorite phrase. and The next verse says, For he who would save his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And you do want to save your life, disciples, don't you? Isn't that the argument? You want to save your life, don't you? I'm telling you how to save your life. I'm telling you how to be a Christian hedonist. Lose it. Lose it for the sake of the poor. Lose it in missions. Lose it for, by standing up for what's right at work. Lose it. Of course there is enough sin in us that we got to be killing ourselves all day long, right? Put to death what is evil in you, Paul said. John Piper is not all the way saved. He is being saved. And therefore, every day, there's stuff in me that needs to be denied for the sake of joy, for the sake of maximizing my satisfaction, not only eternally, but in a hundred practical ways with my wife, my five kids, my 12 grandchildren, Repenting, denying myself, acknowledging wrong so that relationships can be healed, restored, preserved, as well as getting to heaven. 
So yeah, I believe in self-denial, but there is no such thing in the Christian life as ultimate self-denial. That'd be like looking God in the face in heaven when you get there and say, he says, welcome into the joy of your masters. I don't, I don't, I don't do joy. I'm, I'm into self-denial. And I know that's what honors you most. And I know you're offering me joy, but I only deny myself and therefore I can't accept the offer. That's blasphemous. Number six, Christian hedonism changes the way we think about handling our money and the act of giving. I think you're going to be into some really big, wonderful, glorious projects vision in the coming weeks here. So I didn't plan this. Nobody asked me to, but I'd really like you to be a generous people not only for that, but a hundred other reasons. But here are a couple of verses that change everything from a Christian hedonist standpoint and money. Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that. That's a quote from Jesus in Acts. It's one of the only places Jesus is quoted outside the, one of the few places he's quoted outside the Gospels. And Jesus said, it is more blessed Satisfying, fulfilling, rejoicing, happy. It's more blessed to be a generous person, a giving person, than a getting person. Like, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to make me happy. You won't be happy that way. The only way your soul is designed to be happy is to be receiving from the Lord and giving to others. You are made to be a conduit. And when the water, the living water, is flowing freely from God into you, satisfying your soul, flowing out in generosity, you sleep well at night. You're designed that way. And you'll be laying up treasures for yourselves in heaven so that when you get there, your bank account will be really full and your reward will be great. That's all hedonistic language, right? Don't lay up treasures on earth. Why? Because they get eaten by moths. They get stolen in embezzlements. Lay up treasures in heaven. Why? Because you'll be rich when you get there, and your reward will be phenomenal. You'll have greater taste buds for Jesus. Changes the way you handle your money. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's a radical verse. Like if you're about to give and you don't want to, but you do it because the people around you are watching you, God's not happy with that. I don't care if it's a million-dollar check for this pastor's integrity. He's not happy with that. He doesn't love that. Well, if he doesn't love it, what you got to do? you got to get happy in giving. I mean, that's what it says. God loves not reluctant, not under constraint, givers. He loves cheerful givers. So if you don't feel it, get it. 
That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I came to Texas for that. God will use this moment, these moments, to change you and make you a lover of Him that is so satisfying, you will give. Number seven, and I don't, I don't just mean to church. You know, I just mean your, your disposition walking down the street is give, not I won't be taken in by that rascal beggar on the corner. He's a liar. He always tells lies. That's not your mindset. I had that mindset for a long time. I walk by these people every day. I walk by it. I don't drive by it. I walk by I know their names, six of them. My wife and I stop. What's your attitude towards these folks? Yeah, half of them are going to rip you off. They're going to lie through their teeth about what that money's for. What's your heart? What's your disposition? I'll give you a little test here, a little warning. When you get to heaven, you will not hear out of the mouth of King Jesus, wow, you were sure shrewd not to be taken advantage of. (laughs) I promise you that will not be one of your rewards. And if you were taken advantage of 50 times, 50% of the time, and the other 50%, it met some need and glorified Jesus, and you don't know which is which, he does, and he doesn't really care whether you got ripped off. You got plenty. You got plenty. That's what I finally decided. So I go to the bank, I get 51s, put them in a drawer, carry six a day, and I give them away. And I give enough of them away that I can look into their eyes and say, look, if I just give you these three to five $1 bills, could I have three minutes of your time? They always give me three minutes, man. That's cool. I said, tell me your story. Just tell me your story. That's all I want to know. I want to know your story. I want you to be honest with me now. This is yours. Keep it whether whether you tell me or not, but you take it from there. Test your heart, Christian. Number seven. Christian hedonism changes the way we worship corporately. Corporate worship, you, you know this. I love, I, love, I love watching your choir. If I had one suggestion, this, nobody asked me to do this, I'm going to get in big trouble for doing this. There's a, are you main man? I don't know who the main man is here. But anyway, halfway through a number like that, a magnificent choir, let us join you. That's, my, that's it, on my little piece. Don't, don't criticize these people. That was good. That was true. That was powerful. And I wanted halfway up, say, just say, stand up, join us. Bang! Nothing changes except this place explodes because what you're doing is so honoring to Jesus. Okay, nobody asked me to do that. That's not here. And I repent. I repent if it's offensive. Sort of. What I was going to say was... Worship is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus, which means the task of this preacher here and these lead worshipers over here, their task is to spread a banquet in lyrics and in preaching with whatever helps we need musically to connect with the living God. And it just seems to me that a lot of that was happening here. 
And I'm, I'm eager to just breathe on that and be happy about it. Which is why, by the way, so many different forms in 10,000 cultures around the world are okay with God. I mean, if you try to take your way, like this way, okay, all those instruments, that big choir, and transplant that to Chad with a missionary who's got six converts, there's nobody even dreaming that way. So you just need to be aware that's okay too. Six people singing with no instruments or whatever drums they use there, that's just fine because that's not the heart of worship. The heart of worship is, are these six people satisfied in the God they just met in the gospel? It's, it's the heart. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, is Jesus' indictment of worship from the Pharisees. You don't want to go there. Okay, we got three minutes and three more. I think we can do this. No, we can't. I might leave one out. Number eight, <laughs> Christian 1051. Is that right? 1055, we're supposed to be done? Okay. Christian hedonism changes the way you think about disability and weakness. Paul was a thorn-pierced man, right? He had this thorn. He had this thorn in his flesh. He didn't want to have it. He prayed to take it away. God would not take it away. Here's what Jesus said. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Do you remember what Paul said next? Takes your breath away. He said, therefore, this thorn, I don't know what it was. It was painful, though. This thorn, he said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. I just can't believe that word. I can't believe he said that. Yes, I do believe it's in the Bible. And I want to be that way. When I'm broken and weak, therefore I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is what made him live, right? I want Christ to be magnified in living and dying and my thorn, my wheelchair. I want him to be magnified in my life. Therefore, I will receive it gladly. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Johnny Erickson Tata's paraplegic accident. Do you know why Johnny has magnified Jesus? How she has magnified Jesus for 50 years? Answer, she sings. <laughs> she sings for her life. She's told me, like, I, I would die in despair if I couldn't sing to my Jesus in my paralysis. Number nine, Christian hedonism changes the way we look at love. I think I've said enough about giving to make sense out of that. To love is to be so satisfied in God that you extend it to other people and include them in it. If you think that Christian hedonism means me shrinking it in my little cocoon of satisfaction, you can go to hell as far as I care. I'm happy in here. If you think that's what I'm saying, then you don't understand the human heart, you don't understand the Bible, and you don't understand me because the way it worked in Macedonia was that the grace of God came down, joy overflowed, and in extreme poverty and much affliction, they overflowed in generosity. 
And I look at that and say, are you kidding me? In affliction and poverty, joy is overflowing. So my definition of love is, love is joy in God that overflows to meet the needs of others. Closing, last one. Christian hedonism changes ministry. This is for all of you, not just clergy. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. David, I know you know this, but I'll just say it to you in front of these people. Your job is to not lord it over their faith, but work with them for their joy. That's your, your job's over here as well, to work with them for their joy. I, that is an amazing sentence. And circling back, let's, let's circle back and end this way. We circle back to Philippians chapter 1. Paul realizes he's not going to die. He realizes it's not yet. And he's going to remain on the earth. And he says, if I am to remain, verse 25, if I am to remain with you all, it will be for your progress and joy of faith. (laughs) If I die, he gets glory and I get satisfaction. If I live, he gets glory and you get satisfaction. So I came to Texas, Lanier, and this great church, I came here for that. I don't want to lord it over your faith. That's God's business to, to deal with faith with you. But I do want to work with you for your joy in Jesus because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him, especially in those moments of suffering and death. Let's pray.